1: In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. The association of Christmas with angels, spiritual beings one step down from God, who were, are God's messengers to humans, is right there in the Gospels. But angels were ubiquitous in medieval and early modern thought. Some, like Gabriel, are named. The Feast of Michaelmas on the 29th of September was the one day in the church calendar named after an angel, St Michael. But there were also other forms of spiritual being who preoccupied the minds of our ancestors, and among them were ghosts, who could be hard to distinguish from angels or even demons. And Christmas is a good time for a ghost story too. My guest today is not only the author of the book Angels and Belief in England, 1480-1700, to 1700, but has recently published an article in the Historical Journal on the social, personal and spiritual dynamics of ghost stories in early modern England. She is Dr. Laura Sanker, who is a senior lecturer at the University of Exeter and co-writes the blog ManyHeadedMonster.com. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this today, because we've got two wonderful subjects. I mean, I think we could spend several hours talking about either one of them. So let's get going. Let's talk about ghosts first, shall we? It feels like this is something that has attracted many of the great scholars of the period, Natalie Zeman Davis and Keith Thomas and Laura Gowing, and of course you. And I wonder what ghost beliefs can tell us about early modern culture and social life. Wow yeah
2: in a way it's almost what can't they tell us about it and I think one of the reasons that ghost beliefs are so persistent in all societies across time is because they serve so many different purposes and ghosts themselves can appear for such a huge variety of reasons in many different forms And I think that that kind of sustains an interest in them, but also allows the historian to use them to explore so many different areas of culture. The most obvious area is thinking about the afterlife. What happens to you after you die? Where do you end up? What's it like there? But ghosts are also particularly prone to appearing at moments of real social disruption. So when somebody has lost somebody that they knew, a family member, a friend or even a big political figure or something like that, that's going to cause all sorts of ripples in a society, whether they're political or personal or social economic. So ghosts often, when they return, might be trying to resolve some of those difficulties or to settle disputes that have arisen as a result of the death. So they get involved in property disputes, but they might also come back to reveal the location of a dead body if there's been some kind of crime that's been unresolved in life. Or indeed, if they have been murdered, they might come back to reveal who the murderer is or something like that. So they have all these different ways in which they're kind of intervening in life to resolve some of the problems that have arisen as a result of that. I'd say those were the two sort of really big areas. So the first relating to belief and thinking about mentality, why we think we're here, what we think happens to us afterwards. And the second being sort of much more practical and pragmatic appearance where a spirit might come back to intervene, sort of smooth over a transition
1: after death. That's really interesting. So a sort of probably far too functional view of them would be to say what they show us is moments of crisis. They show us things that need resolution and they can direct our attention to those areas. That's true. Without denying that people actually believed in them as well. And I think that's really important to hold those two things, isn't it, Intention.
2: Yeah, and often historians were so interested in the social function that you can kind of forget the spiritual side to this. But, you know, you can't understand why they would appear in the first place or why people would accept and believe them if it's not for the religious context
1: as well. Okay, so let's have a think about that religious context first of all, perhaps then. So was belief in ghosts fairly orthodox? Or was it something that was frowned upon by, let's say, the late medieval Catholic Church? And was there a shift in the acceptability of ghost beliefs in this period?
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And the kind of foundational answer is, yes, they were orthodox in the late medieval church. So the Catholic Church ghosts could be angels, in fact. So they might be the appearance of a good angel or indeed an evil angel or worse still, an evil angel disguised as a good angel but they might also be the souls of the dead returned from purgatory. You'll see in the late medieval church, the belief in purgatory, the in-between state between heaven and hell, that you spend a limited amount of time in being purged of your sins. If you're good enough to go to heaven, but not quite good enough to go there immediately on death, you end up in purgatory. So there is a belief that souls might escape from purgatory, particularly during the night, and that they might return and talk to the living and, you know, bring them messages, And indeed, often Catholic ghosts will return to ask for prayers for their soul. So prayers which will help to speed up and ease their way through purgatory so that they can go to heaven rather quicker. So that's entirely orthodox. That's a belief that the church would support. And indeed, there's some evidence that the ministers might be using ghost stories to reinforce belief in purgatory and to encourage people to pray for the souls of the dead and to support lots of orthodox Catholic practices. It all gets a bit more complicated with the Reformation. Purgatory itself is a concept that's evolved throughout the Middle Ages, but it isn't something that you can find evidence for in scripture. So the reformers completely reject the concept of purgatory and the implication being that a soul cannot return from purgatory because they're either in hell or they're in heaven already, so they don't come back. However, it's not the case that the ghosts or the spirits that are assumed to be the souls of the dead stop appearing to people. You know, I'm talking about Protestant England here because that's where my expertise lays. Ghosts continue to appear and people continue to respond to them as if they are the souls of the dead, particularly if they look like the person that has recently died and they will interact with them in such a way that it makes it clear they're assuming that that is the soul of the dead person. And a really good example of this would be the ghost of Hamlet's father. So when that ghost first appears, Hamlet's very unsure about what exactly it is, but eventually he's obviously assuming that it is the ghost of his father, and he responds to its requests and follows them up. So people are continuing to respond to them as if they are the souls of dead people returning. Now, this isn't entirely orthodox. So according to Protestant theology, if a spirit appears to you, you should really assume it's a demon because that's the most likely explanation for it. God can intervene in the world directly and cause miracles in the early modern period. But the assumption is that he doesn't really need to do that anymore. Christianity has been around for long enough that people should be convinced of it. They shouldn't need miracles to bolster their faith. They should read scripture, and that should be enough of them. They should have faith from there. So if miracles don't happen in the latter days of the church, then it's very unlikely an angel will appear to a normal human being. So instead, if something appears before you, you should assume it's a demon. In practice, that is not what people do. So as we've just said, with the ghost of Hamlet's father people might think, oh, perhaps this might be a demon, I should be careful, but they quickly seem to get over that concern and that ambiguity and then to just start responding to them as if they are ghosts. And this includes clergymen, so it's not just something that's just ordinary people. So it's not an example where reform hasn't quite worked or hasn't been absorbed by people. It includes members of the Church of England itself. So this very strongly suggests that ghosts are not really controversial enough for Protestants to completely eliminate all belief relating to them. And this means that these older ideas about what ghosts are exactly persist and obviously continue to persist well after the early modern period as well.
1: Yes, that's really interesting, isn't it? You'd think that this would be an area where you'd have great differences of opinion between Catholics and Protestants if Protestants don't think purgatory exists. You know, where's the ghost of Hamlet's father come from? How can ghosts be explained? But actually what we're seeing is continuity,
2: Yeah, and in fact, what I would think of and what Peter Marshall has described as a layering of belief. So you've got very old ideas, some of which are classical in their roots, which inform medieval Catholic belief about ghosts. And those are still to be found. So particularly about what ghosts look like and what they do, the sorts of functions they serve. They all persist into the Protestant period. There is then this overlaying concern about, is this a demon or is this not, you know, what kind of spirit is this? So people do get a bit more worried about the nature of spirits. But yet those older ideas about why they're appearing do still persist very strongly. And so you've got the kind of folkloric, the Catholic and the Protestant, and that is all
1: creating the sense of what a ghost is and what it will do. So tell us a ghost story or two. How were ghosts expected to behave? What did they look like? What do they sound like? Could they move things?
2: They are many and varied. And when you start reading Tudor ghost stories and Stuart ghost stories, how they behave is very familiar in terms of the way that we expect ghosts to behave. And so they often appear in the form of a human and in the form of somebody that you will know. But they might appear as an animal. So we have dogs belching fire a milk-white dove often is the form that spirit might take, and sometimes very abstract forms. So there's a ghost that appears and looks as if it's a sail unfurling. A very strange kind of image of what that spirit might have looked like. Some spirits don't appear, so you can't see them, but you hear them. Banging, knocking, that's often a sign that there's a spirit inhabiting your house with you. Shrieking, screeks, and all sorts of other noise, you know, shrieking and general, sort of kerfuffle. And what do they do? Well, they do all sorts of things. So often they will talk to people, but some of them do things that we would probably describe as being a bit more like a poltergeist. They might move furniture around the house, throw things. Some of them will open the curtains on a person's bed and peer in at them while they're sleeping or pull their blankets off the bed. And they do some quite horrible things as well. So there's a ghost that goes through a household and cuts all of the material in the household to shreds. They sort of fed linens and and gloves and clothes and all sorts of things. And in some cases, throwing people down the stairs or bruising them and hurting them. But I think my favourite ghost is the one that spirits a pan off of a hook on the wall, puts it on the fire and then spirits some bacon into the pan and starts cooking the bacon. This kind of very quotidian look into an early modern household and what was going on in there. And ghost stories are great for that. They really take you straight inside people's houses and tell you a lot about what they looked like and the furniture and material that are in there. So there's lots in there for social
1: historians as well, I think. I'm immediately curious as to what records tell us about Ghost Beliefs. How do you know these stories? Where do they come out? The main
2: source for Tudor and Stuart ghosts is printed material. So particularly pamphlets which are published in the second part of the 17th century, when ghost stories just suddenly become very popular. And there are lots of these shorter, 20-page print publications, very cheap, slightly entertaining material. And they're the kinds of things that they report news. They say, you know, a ghost has appeared in Kent and it took this form and it said these things and did these things. Sometimes there's a close overlap between those pamphlets and the sorts of pamphlets that will report crime because if a ghost is returned to reveal a crime, obviously there's a strong overlap. There are a few that survive in manuscript sources. So the ones that I worked on were in the collection or archive of an antiquarian and very devout Puritan, Ralph Forsby. He lived in Yorkshire in the latter part of the 17th century. He was interested in ghost stories and he collected them. So he often reports in his diary that he'll go out to talk to people about a particular ghost that he's heard about so he's obviously trying to sort of collate them and he makes it clear in his diary that he's intending to publish the collection although he dies before he publishes it so we don't have a printed version of this but some of the stories that he collected are in the collection and those were the ones that I looked at when I wrote and researched about ghost stories and what he was doing actually other people were doing at the same time the latter part of the 17th century there were quite a lot of Authors and writers who were gathering stories, not just about ghosts, but actually about all different types of supernatural phenomena. So, including demonic activity, but also prodigies or providential weather, anything which was seen as an example of the supernatural at work in the world. And the reason that they were doing that, why they were collecting these stories and then publishing them was actually because of developments in natural philosophy and mechanical philosophy, what we would now call science, and particularly developments in materialism. So people like Hobbes, who started arguing that the world is just made of material and that there aren't incorporeal materials in the world. And these collectors saw that as profoundly threatening for belief in the supernatural, and then by implication for belief in God and the divine. So what they were trying to do is they were trying to gather lots of empirical evidence that the supernatural did exist in the evidence for these stories. And then they would publish that as a way of refuting skepticism, irreligion, the sort of things that they thought that were rife in coffee houses and coffee house culture. So people getting together, you know, debating things that they shouldn't really be doing. And this was kind of feeding into a perception that there was a rise in atheism at the time. There isn't really that much evidence that there was a rise in atheism, but it's something that people are really concerned
1: about. So this was all kind of tied into that process. So there is, by definition, then a kind of time lag. If we're getting stories from the Tudor period, but they're actually being recorded in the late 17th century, They've definitely gone through a process of being passed down through generations and perhaps being elaborated there's as with everything we deal with, there's a mediation, but perhaps it's a little bit more exaggerated here,
2: yeah, and not all of these stories are from the Tude period, so a lot of them have been collected from the seventeenth century, but there's definitely a retelling of stories, and lots of these collections will frankly, sort of steal material from the other ones and just repeat and recycle and reprint the same stories over and again. And there's a very famous story which actually involves the European reformer Melanchthon, which appears in almost all of these collections because it's such a good reformed Protestant source for a story about a ghost that appears. So these stories are certainly being recycled. They're being recycled in print, but yes, they're probably being retold in communities as well. So whether they're kind of sitting around on Halloween or at Christmas talking about these particular stories or not is not clear but it's certainly if there is ghostly activity then communities seem to know about it and it's part of the kind of gossip networks. One of the cases that I looked at was very interesting because it seems to have been communicated through a midwife and midwives of course visit lots of different households during the lying in period they're part of the female space of the child bed and, we know that lots of people visit women when they're lying in and when they're pregnant, and there's lots of gossip going on in that kind of female space. So it may well be that they're telling these kinds of stories, the ghost stories, when they're meeting in those spaces, and that this is part of female gossip, which may also be why sometimes men dismiss these as old wives' tales. There's certainly a gendered aspect of it.
1: Yes, and the other instance I can think of is John Aubrey saying about Midsummer's Night that people would sit in the church porch to see, and this is more predictions of people who would die rather than ghosts, but apparitions of those who were going to die in the next 12 months, that it was mostly told by women, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's really interesting
2: because this is something which is also associated with St Mark's Eve, which is in April and watching the porch the idea is at midnight all of the ghosts or the spirits of the people that are going to die will walk ahead of you and i've started talking about these as living ghosts i.e., the people are still living but they're going to die and in ralph forsby's collection that i mentioned earlier he has lots of examples of that type of ghost but most of them involve men you know the watchers are men and they're also predicting the deaths of other men So it wasn't something that I picked up on as being particularly gendered, but that's really interesting to hear that somebody else is saying that it is. But it does seem to be a practice that people are doing, and people do often see spirits. One of the cases that I looked at, the person saw about 200 souls or something go ahead of them, and lo and behold, plague struck the village the next year, and many people did die. The numbers involved seem very high. There's no other evidence that proves that this actually happened.
1: But, you know, the story itself, I think, tells us a lot about these societies and what they were prepared to believe. Thinking about gender, are the ghosts' belief gendered not just in so much as who's telling them, but are ghosts primarily male or female? Or do we see anything to do with gender in the kind of apparitions that appear?
2: Yes, absolutely, we do. And this is something that both Laura Gowing and Sasha Hanley have talked about as well. Gender featured very strongly in one of the Thorsby tales that I looked at, which he was actually involved with because it involved an apparition he was related to. And that was a female ghost, and the witnesses were almost all female, including a servant. So it seemed that it was women that were kind of proliferating the tale, and they were the people that were also witnessing the events that had happened And as Laura Gowing and Sasha Handley had found, it very strongly looked like the ghost story was a kind of narrative which these women could adopt in order to intervene in domestic disputes in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been appropriate because of gendered roles within the household. It was almost as if you could kind of co-opt the spiritual authority of the ghost and use it without it kind of looking like it was coming directly from you. So because... Spirits often appear in domestic spaces and often the case that I looked at was a case of disputed inheritance and the inheritance should have gone to two female members of the family and hadn't done and it was a man who had stopped that happening. So it looked very clearly like it was a strategy that was being adopted to try to recover these items for the female members of the family and there are other instances where things seem to play out like that. So the old wives tales but perhaps they also have this other function that's rather more practical. Of course, none of this would work were it not for the fact that people believed in the ghosts in the first place, because otherwise it would just be dismissed as this is just a made-up story.
1: Yes, old wives' tales, but actually what the old wives are doing is doing something quite powerful by using this particular strategy. But I'm really struck by the fact that, and this may show my ignorance of ghost belief in the present, but it seems to me that the stories that we've, been thinking about are about restoration and they're about intervening and making things better and yet when I think of ghosts I think of them as something that produces fear and that's scary I mean do we see any evidence of ghost belief telling us about what people feared?
2: There's certainly evidence that people are very scared when these things appear before them and some real what I think of now as slightly hackneyed literary tropes about hairs standing on the back of the neck and shivering and candles burning blue and things like this and they do often appear at night so that's the time when generally things are a bit more scary and you're never quite sure what you're seeing. There's lots of evidence that people are scared of them particularly when they first appear the exception to this would be there are stories where ghosts appear to bring a warning So this might be somebody who's lived a particularly bad life and then they come back to warn other people not to do the same thing, so not to follow in their footsteps. Or it might be something quite specific. So someone's committed a sin and then a ghost appears to say, you need to repent of the sin or you need to go to the authorities to reveal it. Otherwise, you're going to come to a sticky end. So there are ghosts that are coming back to warn people to mend their ways, essentially. And that's the kind of thing which can obviously be quite scary. And some of the ghosts, particularly when the haunting first starts, because it's very unclear what their purpose is, they can be quite scary. So there's a girl who experiences a spirit who calls her name for three years and that's it. So she doesn't know what else is happening. This spirit, she's just hearing this calling of her name. And eventually the spirit does manifest itself as a milk-white pigeon, I think, and it then tells her something and tells her to go and do something so she's able to resolve this. But while the haunting is happening, I think these things can be quite scary, especially if you're not sure if it's a demon or a a good spirit and what exactly its purposes might be. So they certainly tell us things like that. And I suppose that then is also revealing to us concerns about death and the afterlife and, you know, where are you going to end up and is it likely to be heaven or not?
1: Yes, because I suppose... One thing that they absolutely do tell us about is about people's expectations around death and also how a society handles its grief and remembers it's dead. What do you think we can learn about those things?
2: Yeah, another really interesting area, which was one that the Ralph Fordsby story has allowed me to look at as well, because he seemed to have quite a personal interest, alongside trying to refute what he saw as the rise in atheism, He also, when he was quite young, so when he was still about, I think he was in his his late teens, his father died. And his father died very suddenly overnight and in fact was discovered on All Hallows Eve. He was discovered on Halloween, which in itself was associated with spirits and ghosts at the time. And this was very difficult for Thorsby to deal with. He almost idolised his father and obviously held him up as being the kind of devout Christian that Thorsby would have liked to have been. And he found it difficult because his death was so sudden, his father wasn't able to put his affairs in order. He wasn't able to make sure that his soul was properly prepared for meeting his maker and to order his spiritual and his worldly affairs before he died. It was an example of what people at the time would have thought of as quite a bad death. Mm -hmm. We tend to think of a sudden death where you don't know much about it as a good thing. You know, it was quick at least. But for early modern people, actually, that's a bad, they prefer it if you can see it coming, you can gather people around, you can impart advice, you can settle your affairs. They kind of manage the whole process. And in fact, there are even books written that guide you through the process of dying, and what you should do and the sorts of things that you need to prepare. So for Thorsby, this was very difficult to deal with. How did he deal with the fact that his father had died very suddenly in a way that most people would have thought was a bit of a nasty end? And it seems like his interest in ghost stories was also being fueled by this concern and by him trying to work through his grief around his father's death. And again, it comes back to the idea of living ghosts, or at least what Forsby decided in the end was that he thought his father actually had had an idea that he was soon going to be departing from this world, and that... He had kind of anticipated what was happening. And in the prayers on the eve of his death, so again, a very devout family, so they pray every evening. And during family prayers that evening, Corsby said, I think that my father was praying particularly devoutly. And he was, you know, particularly moving. And the passage that he chose to read from scripture was a way of him settling up his spiritual affairs and looking to the future and looking to his worldly end. So Forsby managed to convince himself that his father's soul had had this kind of prognostication of what was likely to happen, in the same way that when living ghosts appear, they sort of indicate what is likely to happen and indicate that somebody is soon to die. I think that Ralph Forsby's musings on these ghost stories and on this whole process of transitioning from one world to the next helped him to kind of reframe what had happened to his father and to come to think of it in a much more positive light than if he hadn't had these stories to draw on and to meditate on and to reflect on. They were serving a kind of devotional purpose in the same way that a handbook of how to die well would have done.
1: I think that's so interesting because when people die today, most of us who are close to them seem to spend So much energy on thinking about what we didn't do, you know, the phone call we didn't make and the visit we didn't make and the thing we didn't send that we said we would. And what you've just talked through suggests that ghost beliefs in association with devotion in this instance could be really healing. Yeah, I think that's true. And again, that
2: comes back to this idea that a death causes this disruption in our emotional lives as much as it does our practical day-to-day lives. And that a ghost story, to use a modern word, might give you an opportunity for more closure, for you to work your way through some of those things which have suddenly stopped or been cut off by someone's death. The coming to terms with that person no longer being there and you not being able to do all of those things that, that you hoped you could have done. And I feel like early moderns can sometimes be a lot more healthy in the way that they actually think about death and the afterlife and what happens, because it is less of a social taboo People talk about it. It's a very key part of religious cultures and belief. So they have these resources to turn to when they need to and at these particular moments of crisis. And in some cases, it does look like it's effective and it does help to heal and help with the process of grief.
0: That's blue
2: Brought to you by History Hit.
1: Let's move on to think now about those other creatures that could be mistaken for ghosts. Let's think about angels. So what did they look like? Did they have gendered bodies? Did they have wings? There's sort of two answers to that, which is what do they look like in scripture? And
2: then what do they look like, the Tudor folk? There's over 250 references to angels in scripture, but many of them are very ambiguous and some of them are extremely strange as well. So there is a mention of feathers and obviously from that, the winged figures that we're more familiar with grows. But in some cases, they're much more abstract. The evidence in scripture is quite flexible, which probably explains why you get different representations of angels in the Tudor world. But most commonly, they do appear as a human-shaped figure with wings. Theologically, they're gender-neutral. But actually, Tudor and Stuart people tend to represent them as male, which is obviously quite different to now. I think popularly, people tend to think of angels as quite feminine. But usually, they're depicted as male or just quite androgynous, so you, you you can't really tell. But the human form and usually in a long flowing robe, something that's probably quite nice to paint if you're a painter and it's a nice drapery and things like that. Or if it's St Michael, so St Michael the archangel is very much associated with being the leader of the heavenly hosts and has quite a martial role. So he's often depicted in armour.
1: And I suppose the angels for whom we have names are Michael and Gabriel and Raphael. They're all male names. So what in early modern culture would have been a kind of the strength of the male is definitely associated with angels.
2: Yeah, definitely. And as you say, because there are only three named angels and they're all male names, then that is going to cement that expectation. And not to mention the fact it's a
1: patriarchal society. Most of the important rulers and figures of the day are males. Kind of got to be male, really, haven't they? So in the Bible, when angels appear, it's terrifying. So in our evidence of angels appearing to people... In the 16th and 17th centuries, are they scared?
2: Yes, if they know it's an angel, which they don't always, because in scripture, angels sometimes appear and people don't realise as well. So people get mistaken for somebody's angel or somebody knocks on the door and it only transpires later that this was in fact an angel. So they may not know. If they do know, they tend to be kind of overwhelmed or overawed And in some cases, the reactions are quite similar as to when they see a ghost, you know, any kind of spirit. I think people just sort of struck and often can't speak or can't move or don't quite know how to behave and and react. Um, But I think a lot of that is informed by the appearances of angels in Scripture, as you say. So when the angels appear to the shepherds on the hill to announce the birth of Christ, the shepherds are amazed and kind of
1: not quite sure how to react to it, I suppose. Which would be understandable, really. I want to ask you some of the same questions I wanted to ask about ghosts, because I'm interested in the process of change. You know, what did people believe at the start of the early modern period? If we can say when the early modern period is, which obviously is deeply controversial in itself. But anyway, what would we say, <laughs> say the 1500, and how did such beliefs change? And particularly, what effect was the Reformation having?
2: It's a good question. Now, they're very firmly scriptural. So there is lots of evidence that they do exist. So no Protestant reformer is trying to deny their existence. But there are various aspects of Catholic belief around angels that are very objectionable to Protestants, particularly their role as mediators, as you would expect. So angels in the Catholic church are believed to carry prayers up to heaven. In some cases, they're thought to carry the kind of spiritual sacrifice during the mass up to heaven to present it on the heavenly author they carry it from the earthly author to the heavenly one and they are you know one of their chief functions is to mediate between the divine and mankind so it's not surprising that that becomes associated with intercessory prayer that's something obviously that protestants do not accept at all they believe that this relationship is directly with god and that they should only ever pray to God or offer worship to God. So that kind of compromises angels being associated with that type of mediation. The Protestants are also very concerned about the named archangels because they have lots of similarities with saints. So St Michael does have a flourishing cult. In my part of the world, you can go and visit St. Michael's Mount in Cornwall. You could go on a pilgrimage there, visit the shrine. And when they dissolve the shrine, they describe the sorts of material that is there. And we know that there's images of St. Michael there. They have clothes that they dress the image of St. Michael in. And there's lots of other offerings there. So that is obviously a flourishing culture. And that's all wiped out by the Protestant reformers. So those types of devotional activities also disappear in England at the Reformation. So there are these areas of real concern for Protestants that they're trying to stamp out those kinds of practices. But there is lots that they retain that obviously is very helpful to them and is still very much a part of Protestant cultures. And as I say, because they're scriptural, there's no way that they're going to kind of get rid of them completely. They're an integrated part of the Christian universe. And they become, therefore, particularly associated with two main areas of activity – The first is that they kind of represent God's mercy and his merciful dealings with mankind. They offer protection to Christians. They offer comfort. They're considered to be very important co-worshippers, as it were. So if you read the Church of England liturgy, there are lots of mentions of angels worshipping God. And that's held up as an example of the way that a Christian should relate to the divine and how they should also offer praise and how to be involved in public worship. So they're associated with glory and praise and the merciful protection of God. But on the other hand, they're also associated with God's justice, because angels in scripture, they're not always so nice and benign and looking after everybody. They can also do some quite horrible things. So it's angels that destroy Sodom and Gomorrah after God has warned them. Um, They also inflict plague on various communities and Their association with inflicting plague continues. There's evidence of that in the Tudor period and after. And these things are all done in a spirit of fatherly correction. So you punish people in order to bring them back to the path of righteousness and to help them to repent. But of course, none of that matters if you're the person that's being smited at the time. That will always feel harsh and horrible, as you might expect. So they have this kind of twin responsibility for comforting and looking after mankind but also for punishing them when they go astray. And they're very much seen as instruments of God's providence. So God has a plan, and he's a bit too important to get involved with the nitty-gritty and to get his hands dirty. So it's his angels that are sent to earth to carry out that plan, which might be by protecting and rewarding and looking after people when they please God, but it might be by punishing
1: them when they displease God. So they have these kind of twin roles now, some of the art of the period, I'm thinking of Velasquez's Christ after the Flagellation, I think it's in the 1620s, they're about sort Catholic, I guess we could call it Baroque, and it shows the individual Christian soul alongside its guardian angel. That's obviously a belief in Catholic Spain, but does it translate to 16th and 17th century England?
2: Yeah, that's a very common belief in Catholic churches in the early modern period, the guardian angel. And sometimes it's the two. It's the evil demon on one shoulder and the good angel on the other, which is a belief that Protestants don't particularly like. They don't entirely rule it out, but they're very unenthusiastic about it and they would rather prefer it if people didn't speculate like that. And this is all part of a broader kind of Protestant preference Not inquiring too deeply into the nature of angels and their purposes, and particularly for not over elaborating on the scriptural evidence. So, again, it's about theologically pruning the Catholic belief that's developed over the medieval period and getting rid of the things which are not firmly rooted in scripture, and that includes the guardian angel. So there are a couple of passages in scripture which might suggest that every individual has a guardian angel, but it's very ambiguous. So Protestants would prefer it if people didn't go down that route. The other thing which they're very concerned about is the angelic hierarchy. So in the 5th century, there's a treatise published which organises the angels, uncovers nine names for angels in scripture, and organises them into a very distinct hierarchy has three tiers and then three orders of angels in each tier. So, you know, lots of threes, very Christian, have lots of divisions of three in their kind of divine order. And each level of the hierarchy has different roles and responsibilities. The first, which is closest to God, is responsible for worshipping him, being in his presence, it's associated with knowledge. The second one is responsible for governing the universe, moving the planets around, making sure they're in order, working on that larger level. And then the lowest hierarchy is the one which archangels and angels belong to, and they're the ones that intervene on earth and might actually come down and deliver messages or perhaps be guardian angels. This very elaborate hierarchy is something that the Catholic Church accepts and believes in. But Protestants again say, well, none of this is really rooted enough in scripture for us to be able to accept this. It's too detailed. There are too many claims here about specific roles and responsibilities. Although they accept that there's probably an angelic hierarchy, they don't accept the detail around it. So they sort of say there are lots of things in scripture which God has left mysterious and also that we're too lowly to really grasp and appreciate. You know, our feeble human brains are just not able to grasp some of these more arcane divine matters. So we should not delve into them too much because it's dangerous to do so. It might lead us into error. So The best thing for us to do is to just say, well, God has provided these amazing creatures to look after us, keep us on the right path. We don't need to know anything more than that. We can just accept that and give thanks for that. And that's what we should be doing. So to bring it all back to guardian angels, they fall into the same category. Mm, Scripture doesn't really strongly support that idea. So let's just talk about the general protection of angels rather than one angel specifically looking after us. And, of course, the danger is the more that you elaborate on angels and the more you almost humanise them by giving them names and particular responsibilities and giving everybody an angel, the more likely it is that you might accidentally pray to an angel instead of praying for the assistance of the angels, or that you might even worship an angel so we said you know they're terrifying they're kind of awesome in the old-fashioned meaning of the word you know they're awful and therefore you might be tempted to offer worship to them but Protestants believe that worship should only ever be offered to God so it's completely unacceptable to do that so by depersonalizing them a bit and trying to get rid of some of the detail you make them less dangerous and less likely to lead people into practices that
1: Protestants really disapprove of. That's a wonderful answer. I was wondering if there was something about removing agency as well. Like if you have a guardian angel on one shoulder and you have a demon on the other, then anything you do in the end ultimately isn't your fault, really. You've been persuaded by one or the other. Do Protestants care about that? Or would their sense of providence and God's plan remove some of that sense of emphasis on agency?
2: That's a great question. It's not something that particularly comes up in the theological writing, explicitly linking this issue to agency, but it would fulfill the idea of predestination because these divine creatures are sort of determining what your behaviour would be. But nobody's really explicitly making that connection. I mean, the other thing that's sort of looming here is Faustus and Marlowe's version of it in his play, where there is indeed a good angel and an evil angel. And the play is wonderful if you're interested in angels, because all of the theology is in there that we've been kind of talking about. Of course, Faustus himself makes a pact with the ultimate evil angel and bargains his soul away to him. So Faustus does come across really as having free will. A devil can appear to tempt you, but it can never force you to do anything so some of these things are encouraging you to think in terms of the free will of the individual to choose between these good and evil paths in a way that does run against predestination and the idea that God has already ordained whether you will go down the good or evil route or whatever it is so I mean that isn't unusual in Protestant culture so there's lots of sources if you're not talking about a theological source that's been written by a clergyman. And there are lots of sources which still suggest people believe they have free will when it comes to salvation. And of course, in the 1630s, there are new theological ideas that are coming, that are developing, which are reintroducing the idea of free will into Protestant theology. So it's not surprising to find that these things are a bit kind of contradictory in some areas. But as I say, it's not something necessarily that theologians are picking up on particularly when it comes to the good and evil angels. What were angels thought to do at the deathbed? So in late medieval Catholicism, it's believed that angels are very active around the deathbed. And we talked already about the idea of the good death. So the deathbed is an important site where lots of people will come to visit you, have those last conversations, settle any worldly matters that need dealing with. And parents like to impart advice to their children and to their servants and things when they're on the deathbed. The role of the angels comes in when it comes to salvation and the destination of the person that is dying, the destination of their soul. Obviously, Catholic theology, they do believe in free will. So on the deathbed... It's actually a very dangerous time for your soul because it's a moment when you're very weak physically and perhaps very scared about what is going to happen to you. So it's the perfect moment for a devil to pop up and try to tempt you. And they tempt you, particularly, into despair that you're going to go to hell, that you've committed all sorts of sins in life, you haven't repented of them, you didn't say all those rosaries that the priest told you to say three years ago after you did something particularly bad. So, therefore, The devil will pop up and will kind of work on you and will enlarge those fears and will cause you to despair. And of course, if you despair, then you will go to hell. If you lose your faith, then this could be a very serious outcome for you. Now, the good news is it's not just evil angels that are around the deathbed. All the good angels are there as well. So it's almost like there's a cosmological battle going on for the person's soul around the deathbed where the evil angels are trying to temper them into despair and the good angels are there to bolster faith, to console, to counteract the actions of the evil angels and to try to encourage you to keep faith, to accept what is happening to you and to have faith that God will save your soul and that you will eventually end up in heaven. So they very active in terms of that struggle for the soul that happens at the end of life. And indeed, they are also seen as being responsible for receiving the soul after the person has died and carrying it up to heaven. And this is a belief that's rooted in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, because when Lazarus dies, his soul is received and taken up to Abraham's bosom by an angel, and Abraham's bosom is understood to mean heaven. So it's a theologically orthodox idea, and in fact, when you see these guides of how to die well... Often there are accompanying woodcuts, illustrations that show the battle happening. So they show the good angels there and the evil angels, each trying to prevail in this battle. And then if they're lucky, you then see the angels with the soul, which is usually represented as a child in a napkin being carried up to heaven by the good angels, if they've managed to resist despair and indeed are going to get to go to heaven.
1: Shall I tell you what happens with Protestants? <laughs> I quite like the idea that my soul might be a child. You get older and older and eventually you throw off the old body and you've got your child's soul that goes up to heaven. Yes, tell me what happens to Protestants. So for Protestants, obviously,
2: they believe in predestination, or certainly English Protestants do, because Calvinism is at the heart of English Protestantism. So if God has preordained whether you're going to get to go to heaven or hell, Obviously, this really reduces the importance of what happens to you on the deathbed, because it's already been determined. There's no struggle going on between good and evil angels or, you know, this personal struggle going on for you having to avoid temptation. However, the deathbed is still a site of temptation. It is the case that you can live a really good Christian life, even if you are one of the damned, because... You know, you can fall away from your good behaviour and end up revealing your true nature, as it were. And that might happen on the deathbed. So if you were to fall into despair on the deathbed, then that would be an indication that you had, in fact, been one of the damned all along and that you were going to hell. So your behaviour on the deathbed is still seen as very important because it might be an indication of the ultimate destination of your soul. And angels are therefore still a consoling presence there. Angels are actually thought to be ubiquitous. So although you can't see them, you know, they're numerous and they're always thought to be around, monitoring you, protecting you, or perhaps admonishing you. And therefore, they're still written about and used as a consoling presence for people that are facing death and as an example of God's merciful attitudes towards his people you know he did provide saving grace in the first place he will save the elect and his angels are there to make sure that that all happens in the way that he has intended so although theologically the deathbed is less important some of those older practices still persist and the deathbed is still a very important site when it comes to religious faith even if it's not where everything is being decided right at the last minute
1: Now, there are some people in this period, famously John Dee, who were trying to communicate with angels. What should we make of those attempts? It's this kind of elite intellectual magic,
2: some people might call it. But John Dee is really interesting because he has a very specific reason for wanting to contact angels. And that is that he's trying to recover lost knowledge. So after the fall, man's knowledge is obviously vastly inferior to what it has been when man was in paradise in eden and much of what man knew lost and then of course over the intervening time has again been lost and what john d thinks is that if he can contact the angels they will be able to restore this lost knowledge to mankind because they have perfect knowledge they never fell from grace in the way that man has so therefore they would be able to impart that knowledge back to men but of course the angels aren't just going to talk to anybody who calls on them or who says I would like to have access to this special knowledge please so When John Dee is preparing for trying to contact angels, he does it by following good Protestant practice. So he fasts in some cases, or he makes sure that he goes to church when he prepares, he prays before he has the ceremony when he tries to contact the angels. And it's all done in a very kind of religious setting, as we would think of it. And the idea is, is that the more pure that he can become, the more likely it is that he would be able to contact these very pure spiritual beings and that they would then communicate with him. And indeed, he's successful. So he is able to contact many angels over the course of quite a few years, and he slowly is in the process, or they're basically revealing to him some of this angelic knowledge, but particularly they're revealing the angelic alphabet to him. So you know, this is all about language and knowledge and the way that concepts embody knowledge. And to do that, you need to be able to speak the language of the angels, as it were. And it's very complicated. So some of what he found has been published. And you just get these kind of huge grids that look a little bit like a word search with lots of different symbols. And, you know, it's almost impossible to know what is being represented when you look at this material. And of course, it's a huge job to try to recover all of this knowledge And the project is never completed and John Dee is never really able to get further than just trying to start reconstructing this language. But it's interesting because it shows us that there is a belief that angels, they're kind of a model for mankind. They're very different to mankind because they're not human and they don't have fleshy bodies and they're not subject to temptation in the same way that mankind is. But they are seen as an example, both of how to worship God, what your relationship with God should be like, but also kind of perfect knowledge and we will be like the angels if we are lucky enough to get to go to heaven and that's ultimately what mankind's destination will be.
1: I have one last question for you which is how much should we think of angels in this period of time or indeed ghosts as being associated with Christmas? Yeah great question
2: so lots of expectations about angels are based on where they appear in scripture And of course, angels are particularly associated with really important moments when God is imparting information to mankind or doing something which is going to have a huge implications for mankind. So the Annunciation, the reincarnation is announced to humankind through Gabriel when he comes to visit the Virgin Mary and tell her that she's pregnant. And, of course, angels also appear to the shepherds on the hillside when Christ is born and announce his birth to humankind. So angels are very closely associated with Christ's life. They appear in the Old Testament as well, but they're very much to the forefront in the Gospels. And if you look at the liturgy, so if you look at the passages that are read out in churches during Advent and on Christmas Day and the Sundays afterwards, Lots of those recount the narrative of Christ's life. So interestingly, they cover the Annunciation, even though Christmas is actually about Christ's birth. So they are telling that story. And therefore, if you were in church, you're very likely to be hearing stories that involve prominent angelic activity at that time. And they have Christmas carols, you know, just like we do. Lots of our Christmas carols mention the angels, often in this key role of worshipping God, glorifying God, announcing this glorious thing that's happening, announcing good news. So they're quite closely associated with church services around Christmas, and they are very much part of the iconography of Christmas at the time, in the same way that they are for us now as well. Obviously, they don't have Christmas trees, they don't have angels on top of their Christmas trees, but they are prominent in culture around that time. Less so, I think, ghost stories. I think the tradition of ghost stories at Christmas is something that probably emerges in the Victorian era, and it's not an association that I've found in the sources that I've been looking at. And I suspect that All Hallows' Eve and All Saints are probably a more natural time for people to be telling ghost stories because it's considered to be a moment when the supernatural and natural worlds are a bit closer together, the boundaries between them are a bit more porous around those particular moments which is something that you might say about Christmas as well. But as I say, there's no evidence that people particularly turn to the ghosts at Christmas,
1: but very much so angels. Thank you so much for this wonderful tour through these beliefs that were so important to these centuries we've been talking about, to the people of these centuries. So thank you. Yeah, thanks. I have really enjoyed talking about it. Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher Esther Arnott and my producer Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.